as Genesis 37 comes to a close, we saw this wonderful phrase in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so we are set up perfectly to hear the unfolding story of what happens to Joseph in Potiphar's household. And we will hear that story, but not until chapter 39. Because here in chapter 38, we are brought into the life of Judah and asked to consider his actions, the actions of his sons, and the actions of a very unlikely hero, a woman named Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar will remind you probably, if you've been studying with us, of the account of Dinah. It's an account that, again, involves immorality. It involves deception, not surprisingly. We've seen so much deception in the book of Genesis. It involves uh, Jacob's older sons by Leah, as did the account of Dinah. And it's a jarring tale. It's something that you would never expect to find in the pages of Scripture. But just like the story of Dinah and like all of Scripture, it's, it's very contemporary. It's a cautionary tale about the consequences of sin. It's a current story. It applies even to the current events, I think, that we have seen this week. Um, and it's another example of God's scandalous grace towards sinners. As we read it, you will see, if you know the story, you already know this, but as we read it, if you've never heard it before, you will be, it will become very apparent that this is not intended to give you some moral example to follow. That's often what we think scripture is, that it's a bunch of moral examples that we are to follow. Uh, but it's obviously not that. In fact, I, I was listening to Tim Keller this week, and he said the, the moral of this story, and in fact of, of most of biblical narratives, is that morals will never, save, will never save you. I love that. The moral of this story is that morals will never save you. I thought about making that our big idea, but let me get a little more specific. Here's what I think we'll, we'll try to draw from this. Sin's deep roots. I was weeding yesterday. That might be why it's worded this way. Sin's deep roots can only be pulled from our hearts by a breakthrough of God's grace. Sin's deep roots can only be pulled from our hearts by a breakthrough of God's grace. And so we're just going to consider sin's deep roots that are in our hearts and then we'll think about the breakthrough of God's grace that comes to Judah and comes to each of us in the person of Jesus Christ. The outline's not going to be crystal clear, I'll be totally honest with you. We're going to just try to examine those things, the the roots and the results of sin and alongside that see how God extracts those things through his grace, especially in the person of Christ. I want to read Genesis 38, and I want you to have a Bible open to the text so that you can see that I'm actually reading something that is in the Bible, okay? So Genesis 38, and we'll read the whole chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur his son, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, This one came out first, but he drew back his hand. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach or a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. You see the outline of the text, verses 1 through 11, sort of give us the background of who this family is. Verses 12 through 26 are sort of the heart of the story and then it ends with this unique birth story in verses 27 through 
30s. What are we going to do with this? Huh? Again, sin's deep roots can only be pulled from our hearts by a breakthrough of God's grace. This is a challenging text in multiple ways. For, for one, the subject matter is a little uncomfortable. Let's just be honest about that. Uh, number two, it's very culturally bound. Some of the practices in here and the things that they do are bound up within that culture. And so we have to try to understand what these things mean. Another challenge is its placement in the text. Why here? Why is it disrupting the Joseph narrative? And in, in fact, trying to answer that question helps us get into what the point and the purpose of Genesis 38 is. And so I want to address that question kind of as a way of getting us into the text. Why here. The first reason we could say would be just timeline. It fits best here. That's This is where it happens in the timeline. You see those words, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So as you try to map out these events, it probably runs parallel to the whole Joseph narrative. So while Joseph is going through everything that he is going to go through, this is what's happening in the life of of Judah. In fact, one person, one commentator I read seemed to say that the culmination of all of this would have happened probably right around when the famine was striking the land. But that's when this would have all been coming to a head. It also fits not just because of the timeline, but because it continues to pick up on the character of Judah. So Judah, remember, is mentioned back in chapter 37. He's the guy that organizes the sale of Joseph. And so we pick up a little bit on his character here it's also the character of judah is going to form a stark contrast to the character of joseph in both situations they're faced with sexual temptation we see judah and then we see joseph and so as we look at genesis 39 next week we'll see this stark contrast between these two men we witnessed again judah in chapter 37 leading the way and selling his brother and then deceiving his father and here we're going to watch him continue down this selfish and sinful path, and he drags his sons along with him. Just like the story of Dinah, what we find here, again, are men failing to fulfill their responsibility and despising their place in God's plan. These guys all fail to do what they are called to do by God, and they don't honor the place that they have as God's covenant people. The problem begins when Judah disregards his responsibility as a member of the sons of Israel and to marry within the family of blessing. And instead, he chooses to separate from his brothers and marry a woman of the land, a Canaanite woman who remains unnamed, but is the daughter of Shua. The description within the text of Judah marrying her seems to indicate that this is much more lust than it is love. And we know that that would, that would fit with Judah's character as we continue to look at the narrative. This wife bears three sons that play a major role in the account, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These sons grow, and when it comes time, Judah chooses a wife for his firstborn, Ur, and her name is Tamar. Presumably she is a Canaanite. So if you think about that, you have a son of Judah by the daughter of Shua. So the, this son Ur is half Canaanite and he's going to marry a full Canaanite as far as we know. And this is slowly becoming the seed of promise. It's being intermingled. Interesting to see what's going to happen here. The marriage doesn't last long though because we're told that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And what does God do? He kills him before Tamar and he had had any children. As a result, Tamar 
is now in an extremely difficult situation. Tamar's probably young, probably a teenager. They would have married young in that day. And she is now, as a teenager, a childless widow. This would have made her one of the most vulnerable people in the society of her day. In that society, not having a husband and having no child would put her in this place of extreme vulnerability. She would have no way to provide for herself. There's no way she's going to go out and get a job. That's not how this culture would have worked. And because of that vulnerability, there were laws set up in Israel and also in the surrounding nations and societies that sought to protect widows like Tamar. And it's the law of the Leverite marriage. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy, but it's also in other ancient uh, civilizations. And what happened was this law said that the father-in-law, Tamar's father-in-law, so Judah, is responsible for, for providing another son, a husband, for Tamar. This is Judah's responsibility. And the purpose of this, the focus is to protect her. It's for Tamar's protection. It's a matter of justice. This is what is the right thing to do. And it's a matter of responsibility. Judah is responsible to do this for his daughter-in-law, in law Tamar. In fact, in some cultures, if he had no son, it became the father's right to have a child through this woman so that the line could continue. Now, that may sound strange, but that's simply a protection. It's, it's meant to be a protection for this vulnerable widow. So Onan, Ur's brother, is called upon to fulfill this custom of the land, to have a child by Tamar so as to continue the line of the firstborn and to protect Tamar. But Onan refuses, but not outright. He deceptively refuses. We don't know the nature of Ur's wickedness, but we have a description of Onan's, maybe more of a description than what you want. Onan is selfish. Onan... um, is is consumed with thoughts of himself. His knowledge that the child would be hers and not his is what leads him to disregard the blessing just like his father had. I, I think the reason that verse 9 is so descriptive is because Onan is is despising and he is shamefully treating what is meant to be the seed of promise. This is supposed to be a seed of blessing and he treats it shamefully. His concern is only for himself. It's not for God's promise. And he's probably thinking, at least in part, that if he has a son, that son will be Ur's, and there goes more of my inheritance. Because Ur's son is going to get probably at least half of what my father would get. And, and if, if, I don't, if Ur has no son, then that means more inheritance for me and for my children. But what makes Onan even more despicable is he's not honest about that. And he could have said to his father, no. I'm not doing it. I don't, I don't, I refuse to raise up a son for Ur. I don't care about the line of blessing and I want the full inheritance. I don't want any of it going to any son of my brother that would be by me. But what does he do instead? This is what Onan does. He gratifies his flesh while refusing to take on his responsibility. Gratification without responsibility. That's what Onan does. Multiple times it says. What a phrase. Gratification without responsibility. As I thought about that, it's not a pleasant thing to think about, but it describes so many sins of our day, especially 
the sexual sins of our day. Think of all the industries and all the temptations that say be satisfied and it won't cost you anything. Gratify your desires and face no responsibility. This is the attitude that feeds things like pornography, like prostitution. It feeds human trafficking. It feeds the rape culture that we deal with. It causes the difficulties that are faced by single mothers. It's created the plight of absentee fathers. I'll be satisfied and no responsibility. And it is probably a deep core root of the murder of innocent children through abortion. It even creeps into marriages, makes the gift of physical union a means by which one person can be satisfied at the expense of the other. Beware of this. Beware of gratification without responsibility. Beware of the temptation that says you can be satisfied, you can be gratified, and there will be no responsibility. It's a temptation to selfishly consume and face no consequences. It's deceptive and it's evil. And in all of this, who is facing the brunt of it? Tamar. Tamar is treated shamefully. The re- what was the reason for the Levite marriage laws? To protect her. And what's happening to her? She's being used. She's being taken advantage of. And Onan is held responsible. He's held responsible by God, as we all will be. Just like Ur, he is said to be wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he's put to death for his sin. Now, we don't know why some people die. And it's almost always, I think, presumptuous to say that a person is struck down by God because they did X. But it obviously happens because it happens twice here to two despicable brothers. How does that strike you? What do you think about that? Two young men struck down because they were wicked. Maybe you think that's overly harsh. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Maybe you look at them and you say, yeah, they deserved it. They had it coming. Or maybe you look at God and you say, I don't know if that's the God that I understand. But here's the reality. All sin, Ur's, Onan's, yours, mine, all sin deserves death. And from the very beginning, God is clear. To disobey, to rebel against my law, the sentence is death. Our sin may not bring immediate physical death on us. It could. It may not, but the fact that we will all die is rooted as a consequence of sin. Why is death in this world? Because of sin. The real question then becomes not whether or not we will die, but whether or not we are spiritually dead. It's not if we will die, but when we die, what will happen? That's why Jesus says, don't fear the one who can put you to death. Fear the one who can put you to death and then punish you for all eternity. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. So what will the end result of that judgment be for you? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. As we will see more, the way of salvation is found in Jesus, who suffered and died so that Ur's and Onan's and Judah's, you and me, can be saved. After the death of his sons, Judah continues to disobey. He continues to neglect his responsibility in the family. But unlike his sons, God spares his life. Judah lies to Tamar. He says, I'll give you my son Shelah when he's older. And the reason he refuses to is because he is scared. He feared that he would die. 
he assumes that Tamar is cursed in some way. You might not blame him. He's got two sons married to her, and they die. But Judah is is blind to the wickedness of his sons. He's living in complete denial. He thinks it's Tamar's fault. And he have got Ur and Onan who are despicable. And yet he's blaming Tamar. He is in denial, not only of the wickedness of his own sons, but of his own wickedness. Judah is blind to his own sin. But everyone else sees it, especially Tamar. Tamar sees his true character, which is why she plots the way that she does. She sees that Sheila is never going to be given to her, and so she decides to take justice into her own hands. And the, way she, the reason she plots the way that she does is because she knows Judah and she knows his character. She hears he's going to be heading to shear his sheep. She plots to entrap him by posing as a prostitute. How could she know her plan would work? That Judah's going to turn aside to her. Because she knows Judah. She knows Judah and she knows his sons. And the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. The deliberate way that the text talks about this, describing her widow's garments, how she takes off her widow's garments, wraps herself in a veil, it's, it's deliberate. And it reminds us of Rebecca. You remember Rebecca, how deliberate Rebecca was in deceiving Isaac, how she prepared the food and dressed her son to deceive Isaac. And yet again, one more time, a third generation, a disguise and a goat show up as means of deception. And they succeed yet again. Judah takes the bait. Pause here for a minute. Let's think about the nature of sin. We're talking about the roots of sin and how deep they go. What does sin look like? What's playing out in the lives of Judah and his sons? We've mentioned some of these. Let me spell them out. Let me give you four, just briefly. One, sin disregards what God values. Sin disregards what God values. Judah, Ur, And Onan, all are despising the blessing. They're despising the seed of promise and their place in that line. They're despising God's salvation through them. They don't care to be used by God in that way. And not only are they despising the seed of blessing, they're despising justice for Tamar. Tamar is just a pawn in their game to get what they want. They despise justice for the vulnerable. They disregard that, and God values that. We'll see that more. So sin disregards what God values. Two, sin seeks gratification without responsibility. We've said that already. Sin seeks gratification without responsibility. It's clear in Onan, right? But Judah's actions make us wonder if Onan didn't learn it from his father. We see that, that Judah goes off soon after his wife had died, and he goes into a prostitute seeking gratification without any responsibility. Sin disregards what God values. It seeks gratification without responsibility. Sin brings shame and ridicule. Sin brings shame and ridicule. So he makes this deal with Tamar, not knowing that it's Tamar. And then he sends this this goat with his friend, Hira, to take the goat back uh, to this prostitute and to get his wallet back. That's essentially what he gave her. He gave her his driver's license, his social security card, his credit cards. He gave her exactly what his core identity, and she now has it. And so he sends this goat to get that back, and she's not there. So what does Hira do? Goes around to the Canaanites, to the people of the land, knocking on the door. My master Judah, 
you know, from, you know, of, of Abraham and Isaac. He was with a prostitute, and we owe her this goat. Knocking on all these doors. Can you imagine? And, and eventually they say there was none here. And Judah says, listen, let's, let, let's leave it alone or we're going to be laughed at. He's made to look like a fool in front of the people of the land. And not only that, but when it all comes out, think about that. What is Judah marked by? His life is marked by being deceived into an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law. That's Judah's history. Sin brings shame. It brings ridicule. Don't we see this so sadly in our lives in small ways that when sin comes out, it brings shame. It brings ridicule. And then in larger contexts, when those who are leaders within the church fail, it brings shame and ridicule. And we need to be careful. We need to see the warning that is here. And not just to us, right? Who does it bring shame to? Bring shame to God. Bring shame to the church, to his people. So sin disregards what God values. Sin seeks gratification without responsibility. Sin brings shame and ridicule. And sin breeds hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Sin breeds hypocrisy and self-righteousness. How amazing. Sin and persisting in secret sin makes us think that we're holier than everyone else. How deceptive that is. When Judah hears about Tamar's pregnancy, what does he do? What's his immediate reaction? Kill her. And it's not just a, a simple thing. He, he's, it's as if he's been waiting for this moment, you know. And he, it comes to him and he says, I knew it all along. I knew it was her fault. I knew that she's the reason that my sons died. And not only says that she should be killed, but that she should be burned. It's a torturous, humiliating death. This is the double standard of the conscience that is seared by sin. It sees the sin in others, but not in himself. She is wrong for her immorality. What about you, Judah? It's not what God says. Hosea 4.14, listen to this. God says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. What? God won't punish that? Why? For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God is not blind. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're holier than everyone else, but God sees it. We're often so judgmental of other people because we want to justify ourselves, right? We need others to be more sinful so that we can feel like we are right. But God sees through all our hypocrisy and he exposes our self-righteousness. That's sin, right? I mean, we got to look. This is ugly, right? But let's be honest about the sin in our own lives and the sin in our world. Um, it may not be comfortable to look at, but it's, it's the right thing to do, and that's why it's here. And looking at that now, I think we need to ask the question, why does Tamar do this? Why does she do what she does? Why doesn't she just sit back and forget it? I'll just stay in my father's house and I'll die here. It's a great risk. I mean, what's going on later on? Where is she going when the reveal finally happens? She is on her way to execution. She is getting ready to be killed. This is a huge risk for her. What is she seeking? She's seeking justice. She wants justice. She wants what is right. Judah, remember, is responsible 
What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to provide for Tamar, and he tries to write her off. She sees very clearly that Judah is not going to be faithful to his responsibility, so she takes matters into her own hands. I think this all helps us understand why the text says, and I think this is the key phrase in the text, when Judah in verse 26 says, she is more righteous than I. That's the key. She is more righteous than I. Does the text say that she was righteous? No. She's more righteous. Entrapment, deception, incest, these are wrong. And they are not justified in order to bring about justice. But Tamar shows greater righteousness than Judah. I think she shows greater righteousness in two ways. One, the big sin, I think, of Judah in many ways is neglecting the seed of promise, despising that. And Tamar is the one who comes in and says, this seed must be preserved. She's faithful to this family. She says, this is the family that I have been betrothed to, and the seed needs to come through the firstborn. And so Tamar, in some unique way, becomes the one who carries on the seed. She's in the line of David. She's in the line of Jesus. Matthew doesn't have to mention any women in his genealogy. The first woman that he mentions, Tamar. She's in there. So Tamar is is more righteous because she's concerned for the seed of promise. But secondly, Tamar is more righteous because Judah's sin of injustice is greater than her sin of immorality. We need to be careful about that. We don't want all sin is against God, right? But I think the key here is that what Judah does in not giving her justice, not fulfilling his vow to her, is worse than what she does in seeking justice in a wrong way. I think what this highlights and what the text helps us to see is God's concern for justice, for the marginalized, and for the oppressed. God cares for widows. God cares for orphans. God cares for those who have no one to protect them. And that is vitally important to God. He cares about injustice. I think we look at this text and what do we see? What jumps off the page to you and me? Sexual immorality. That's what jumps off the page to me. And that is wrong. And it's ugly. And it's a sin against God. But we look at this and we miss what Judah is doing to Tamar. And the injustice that is there. It happens when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed by God. Why? Because of immorality, right? Ezekiel 16:49 and 50 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Did God care about the sin that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, about the sexual sin? For sure. But what's his major concern here? That people were living at prosperous ease, and the oppressed and the vulnerable were not being cared for. Justice was not being done in Sodom. And so he destroyed them. Let's pause, okay? God is concerned not just about immorality, not just about personal, private sins. He is concerned about oppression. God is concerned about racism. God is concerned about injustice. He is concerned about unjust uses of power. And we need to be concerned about it too. 
we cannot just focus on the sins that rise to the surface in our own minds or because of our own cultural heritage. We need to look and see that there are people who are oppressed and are facing injustice, and we as representatives of God are called and responsible to care for them. This is what Isaiah 117 says. Learn to do good. And what is the good? Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is God's heart. Is this our heart? I think we have a lot to learn. And it's going to start by listening with ears of compassion and openness. We need to think through injustice. Who are the oppressed? Who are the marginalized in our world? Are we concerned for them? Have our actions created the problems that they face? This whole discussion that is rising, that has risen this week, the church needs to step in with open ears and open hearts, with eyes looking for injustice. I'm not trying to take one side or the other. I'm just saying that we can focus so much on everything else and miss something that is at the very heart of God. And God says to Judah that Tamar's sin is not as bad as what he has done in not giving her justice and neglecting to care for a vulnerable, exploited person in his society. Are we doing the same? Why is Tamar the hero of this story? Because her actions preserve the line of the kings of Israel and ultimately of Jesus himself. She seeks justice and in so doing preserves the seed of promise. Remember that big theme through the book of Genesis that God says this seed will crush the head of the serpent and all throughout will the seed survive and it's threatened here and who saves it? Tamar. Is it pretty? Not at all. But her bold and decisive actions bring blessing to the whole earth when all the men who surrounded her would have let the seed of blessing die in the dirt because of their own selfishness and because of their disregard for the things of God. Tamar is a hero. And she's a hero not just for humanity in general, but she's a hero to Judah. Boy, she saves Judah. Notice the amazing moment, a moment of amazing grace in Judah's life. God has spared his life up to this point, despite how wicked he is. But in committing this this final act of ultimate injustice against Tamar by having her burned, this would have sealed Judah's fate. But instead, his staff, his signet, and his cord are held in front of him with this question. Do you recognize these things? Please identify these things. I know what Judah thought when he heard those words. He thought about what they had said to his father. In Genesis 37, verse 32, they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He heard in his head himself saying, Father, Do you recognize this coat? Is this Joseph's coat? And I think in a moment, Judah saw how far he had sunk. His mind went back to Dothan. His mind went back to this lie that he told his father. And his eyes were opened about the way that he had run from God, the way that he had disregarded the promise, the way that he had treated others so unjustly. And this is the breakthrough for Judah. 
This is his breakthrough moment. And it's a breakthrough that marks the whole change of his life. This, this whole situation changes Judah completely. And it turns him into the man who later on says, I will die to protect Benjamin and to protect my father. This is the great turning point in Judah's life. He is saved from his sin in an amazing and a poignant way. I think that's the point of the birth account of Perez and Zerah. This, this strange twins wrestling in the scarlet cord and the one who was second comes out and rules over the first. And of course it reminds us of another time when brothers were wrestling and the second rules over the, the firstborn. And, and in some ways it's a foreshadowing, I think. This would be happening again, possibly right around the time where they're going to find out that Joseph's still alive. And, and as if a man come back from the dead, that all of Joseph's dream, though the, the second, the third, the fourth, the eleventh born, he is going to rise up above all of his brothers. And there's some sort of foreshadowing here. But it also points forward to the one who's going to come from Judah. This family, for all its failures, is the line of King David and finally of King Jesus. This is the breakthrough. Sin's deeps, sin's deep roots can only be pulled from our hearts by a breakthrough of God's grace. For Judah, it's this breakthrough, this child, Perez, the breach that happens. And Jesus, for us, is the breakthrough that we need. Because he's not simply more righteous than us, is he? He is perfectly righteous. You look at G- Judah looks at Tamar and his sin is exposed. And the same thing happens for us when we look at Christ. and We see the righteousness of Christ and our sin and our wickedness is exposed. We see ourselves for who we really are. We're people who disregard God's, what God values. We're people who gratify our own desires so that, and face no consequences for it. We are those who bring shame on ourselves. We are people who are self-righteous and we are hypocritical. We are those who deny justice to vulnerable people. And our sin is deeper than we thought. We might be pure in some ways, but God is concerned about injustice and we are not. We wrestle with racism. We don't defend the cause of the victims of prejudice in our society. I think we as a nation and as individuals have been forced by the news to say something is wrong and something needs to change. We look to the cross and we see what sin costs. That our sins have condemned an innocent man to death. Judah wanted to condemn Tamar when he was the one that was guilty. And we have condemned Christ. All our sins he has taken on himself willingly. And he dies. And in that death he dies for our sins. Dies for our wickedness. Do we see our sin? Has there been a breakthrough moment for you? Or like Judah, you finally see, oh no, I've been running from God. Your choices are to turn and repent and live, or you can go the way of Ur and Onan and die in your sin, and there will be no hope. But if God gives you the grace of, of holding before 
you your identity, your signet and your ring and your cord, who you really are deep down. If he opens your eyes to that, then turn. Turn and repent. Trust in him, otherwise there is no hope. And for each of us, there are moments when, when we, our identity is held before us, when who we really are in Christ is held before us, and we say, I'm not acting like that. I'm acting like the world, and we need to turn and repent and trust. There's a breakthrough moment for Judah that changes his whole life. I pray that if you are, have never bowed your knee to Christ, that this morning would be some sort of breakthrough that you would see in Judah, you would see yourself. And I pray for each of us, if we are believers, there are things in our lives. Maybe it is injustice. Maybe it is sexual sin. Maybe it is something else in that gamut. And God in this moment, through the example of Judah, through the example of Tamar, through the beauty of Christ, who is more righteous, who is perfectly righteous, he's revealing our hearts. Turn. We must turn and seek forgiveness. By God's grace, may this be a breakthrough day in our lives. None of us have arrived at perfection. I pray that we would look at our sin and that we would look to Christ, who is perfectly holy, and that we would move closer to him. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I'll pray for us. Father, your word is a mirror and it shows us our sin. God, and if we want to point the finger at Judah, we're pointing right back at ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would make this day a breakthrough for us, maybe a day of salvation for some, but for others a day where we see our sin for what it is and we forsake it. Lord, maybe a day when we would confess our sins to others, when we would repent of our sin, when we would turn and follow after you, Lord. You're, you bring life to us. Sin is nothing but death. And you have come to give us life and life to the full. Let your word expose our hearts this morning, God. May this be a day of breakthrough and a day where we fall on your grace even more. I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.